This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. And welcome to the human side of healthcare. Steve Love along with Thomas Miller. And, you know, Thomas, I really enjoy doing this show with you, but it's kind of sad. We hit a statistic this week that is not a happy statistic. We now have over 100,000 people in this country that have died from COVID-19. I know one of them. You know, that's right. Uh, We talked about that early in this pandemic when you lost a very good friend in Colorado. And again, I am so very sorry. Yeah, it it really brought a reality to this early on. And as we've all watched and processed the events of the last couple of months, I think we've processed it through our own lens and filter, because I also know a lot of people who don't know even anybody who knows anybody with the virus. So there's a broad spectrum here. I think it is time to get back to work carefully. Yeah, you're right. I think, you know, the economy is so important. But at the same time, we just have to continue to remind people, please practice good health habits. Please practice social distancing. When you're in a public space, please wear a mask. And, you know, Thomas, we need to keep reinforcing that because many of our listeners may have already begun going back into the workplace. I'm noticing people are really not doing the mask thing. Yeah, you know, I don't quite understand that. You know, when you wear a mask, to me, it sends two messages. One, that you really understand how contagious this is. And two, you're wearing a mask because you care about your fellow Texan. By you wearing a mask, you're helping to protect them. You know, there's one thing about going back and reopening that has not changed, and that is the contagiousness of this virus and the deadliness of this virus. From what I've read and in talking to the physicians, the thing that is so, so potent about this virus is many times you're very contagious and you're shedding before you exhibit any symptoms. Whereas with the flu, many times you become much more contagious as you exhibit more symptoms. Well, you and I have self-categorized, I guess, or self-diagnosed as being in one of the higher risk categories. I think if you or I got it, that we'd have a, you know, we'd have a tough go of it. And pardon me, folks, but if Steve or I are out there at Home Depot or at the grocery store and we see you, we'd rather see you in a mask. Absolutely. You know, I think that means you really care, as I said, about your fellow Texan. The other thing, too, as we get more and more and more information on this, don't get me wrong, it can attack anyone, but it seems to be harder on men than women, and it also seems to be harder on people of color. And so we need to be respectful, especially of high-risk situations. You know, I I love that clip that was circulating this week. It was a governor who got emotional during a press conference, basically saying that, look, you don't know what somebody else might be going through. And the reason he was responding to it is people were actually being critical of people for wearing a mask. Yeah, that was the governor of North Dakota, and he did get very emotional. The thing that touched and tugged at my heart is when he said, 
that person may be wearing a mask because they have a child at home that's undergoing cancer treatment. I mean, you just have no idea why somebody is choosing to or not to wear a mask, but it certainly is safer if you would. Anyway, I think we've, we've covered that point well. So I know you're in on a lot of the local authorities' conversations. What are the county judges of the four counties around the Metroplex focusing on right now? I think their main focus is, okay, as we've opened things back up, what is a good metric to look at to see how we're doing? And we're really focusing on hospital COVID admissions that then move to the ICU unit within a hospital. And as of now, they're stable. As of now, we have not seen a big spike, but that's what they're watching. And what is the plan, or is there a plan, if there is a spike? Well, if there is a spike, we do have capacity in the ICU. We do have capacity related to ventilators. And then if that capacity is all used, we then pull off the shelf our surge plans where we can add additional beds and additional workforce to treat people with COVID-19. And Thomas, let's hope we don't have to do that. Absolutely. And it's really good to get the economy going. Hey, I got to tell you, Thomas, the hospitals want the economy to go as well. Many people may not realize this, but we had Dr. McCracken on last week. Hospitals for the last two months have really had difficult times, and many have lost margins, have had increased expenses, and a tremendous amount of lost revenue. Hey, let me take that opportunity to throw a plug in here. If you did not hear that interview that we did last week with Dr. John McCracken, he's Ph.D. economist at both UTD, University of Texas, Dallas, and Southwestern Medical School, UT Southwestern Medical School. Phenomenal interview. It's on our podcast. If you just go to your favorite podcast player, search The Human Side of Healthcare, and it's for last week's episode, and it was an amazing interview. Yeah, and one of the takeaways I had from it and I've been in healthcare all my life. And one of the reasons I've always thought of healthcare as being recession proof, but he pointed out, yeah, but hospitals are not pandemic proof. And how true that is. You know, the hospitals just here in the hospital council inject over $15 billion back into the economy of North Texas every year. So they're not only a place you go for diagnostic work, treatment, surgery, trauma care, et cetera. They are some of the largest employers in this community. Yes, and to that end, we are going to continue the coverage that we've been doing here for the last month or six weeks, talking about the various healthcare aspects of COVID. And one of those is an area that a lot of people don't think about, Steve, transplants. Absolutely. You know, we're delighted that we're going to have Patty Niles with us from Southwest Transplant Alliance. She's the president and CEO there. She's a nurse by training. And there are so many aspects of COVID-19 related to testing, transplant, et cetera, that she's going to talk to us about. And then we're going to continue the conversation around people not wanting to dial 911 and go take a look inside a trauma unit. And you're right, Thomas, you mentioned people are afraid to call 911. Well, in trauma, you know, it's life or death. We call it the golden hour. Sometimes when you're in that trauma situation and you've got just 
precious minutes to save your life. And it's amazing how these trauma teams truly work as a team, and they respond, and everyone knows their part, everyone knows what they need to do, and they save lives every day. Well, the bottom line of this is no matter where you are or your company or your family, we've got to get back to work safely, but we've got to get back to work. We need to get back to work. We do need to open the economy, but we need to do it in a very safe and healthy way. And this is the human side of healthcare. We will be back right after this quick break. Don't forget about our podcast, as we mentioned before. Just check your favorite podcast player for the human side of healthcare for all of our in-depth interviews in this area. Got some traffic and weather for you. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. This is the human side of healthcare on 1080 KRLD and the radio.com app, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. And welcome to the human side of healthcare. Steve Love, along with Thomas Miller. And we're going to talk about a topic today that many of our listeners may not have thought about. But, you know, we've been dealing with COVID-19. How has that impacted transplants related to heart transplants, lung transplants, kidney transplants? We couldn't have a better guest. Patty Niles, President and CEO of Southwest Transplant Alliance, is here with us. Welcome, Patty. Thank you, Steve. It's an honor to be with you today. You know, many of our listeners may not understand Southwest Transplant Alliance and what you really do. Could you give them an overview of what you do and why it's so important in healthcare? Absolutely. Generally, to put it in a simple point, a bullet point, is we save lives through organ donation and transplantation. We're out in the communities trying to drive awareness trying to get people signed up uh, on the registry. As you know, on the, your driver's license, you can once you say yes to donation, that's kind of legal intent. So we, we do a lot of community efforts to get people signed up. And then we do work in the hospitals. Uh, so it's all in an effort to promote donation. And then when we have the organ donors, find the recipients and find the matches um, for the 10,000 people in Texas who are waiting for that life-saving transplant. You know, I think that's an amazing statistic, 10,000 people waiting for the transplant, and you save lives every day. So let me ask you this. When we bring in COVID-19, and as you know, COVID-19 keeps uh, getting into our lives every day, and it has been for many, many weeks, has that impacted Southwest Transplant Alliance? And I'll, I'll ask two questions. One, are people afraid to accept a organ donation because of fear of catching COVID-19? And two, how have you changed the way you're doing your mission because of COVID-19? So absolutely people are afraid, the first question. People are afraid to accept an organ. Um, I, I think people are afraid to walk into a hospital right now, and I think fear is driving um, a lot of what we do. So um, our job at Southwest Transplant Alliance is to provide as much information about the organ donors to the transplant centers so they can make really good decisions about the organs they're taking for the recipients. The last thing we want to do is was try to save someone's life and transmit uh, an infection like COVID to a recipient. So we're doing a lot of work out front 
to make sure those organs are safe and healthy organs for our transplant centers. Um, Changing how we're doing business, we have had to change really how we're doing a lot of what we do. We Everything we do is in hospitals, and there's a lot of fear, even on our own staff, of walking in, inside a hospital. You know, are we going to be exposed and infected? So we had to immediately change really how we're doing. We're having, uh, you know, as you know, families aren't um, in hospitals a lot. Uh, the hospitals that were having restrictions on the families that are there. So when we have a conversation with the family about the potential organ donation, we might have to do it virtually. We might have to do it on a computer or on a phone. So that's kind of changed We've also tried to change our recovery sites, meaning when we have an organ donor in a hospital, we complete that whole task, that surgery at the, at the donor hospital. But because of the limited capacity in the ICUs with ventilators, we had fear in the beginning about how we were going to operate if ICUs reached their capacity. So we quickly changed how we're doing business by moving all of our organ donors to um, an off-site hospital that had closed because they did only did elective surgeries. Uh, First Baptist Medical Center welcomed us with open arms. Um, so we're moving our donors there because there's less risk of COVID. There are, it's a COVID-free environment. They don't have any patients um, because elective surgeries were stopped. So we've changed how we're doing it, and it's enabled us to continue the mission, which has been beautiful. We had uh, a two-week slowdown in April. Otherwise, we have continued on, and our transplant centers are greatly relieved because we're testing. We were able to start testing early, uh, so again, to provide those healthy, safe organs for them. Patty, Southwest Transplant Alliance, how many counties do you serve? We, uh, we have about 90 counties. We have about 260 hospitals that we service all throughout Texas. So it's a large geographical area. Um, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but we, it is what it is. We go from Texas, Canada, to El Paso. So we have people in planes. We have people in cars. So the travel, uh, of course, the travel was um, a, a big obstacle for us because we fly our staff commercially. So they get on a Southwest flight and they head to El Paso. So we had reduced flights, which was also um, a, a major hurdle for us with getting people around the state. So that's why moving the organ donors to us made a lot of sense uh, geographically from a, a staff per- perspective. And, of course, from the transplant surgeons, they weren't having to travel. They could just come to our off-site recovery center to do that. So it, it really has helped us um, continue the mission. You know, the mission you have and you save lives with what you do is just tremendous. And, you know, I've been in healthcare a long time, so I always like to ask people this question. When you're in healthcare, and I know your background, you're a nurse, but you moved into transplant. How did you decide to move into transplant? <laughs> well, this is it's an interesting story. As a, an intensive, intensive care nurse, I used to take care of the, the patients who got kidney transplants. So it was something I saw every day, and I love seeing um, that transition and how quickly they improved. So my, uh, after 10 years working in intensive care, I thought I want to apply for the job. Uh, there was a local uh, opening at the hospital that for a transplant coordinator, which was the person who took care of the people getting the transplants. So I put my resume in the box, sat through an interview and quickly realized that my resume had gotten into the wrong box. And I was now being interviewed for a job on the organ donor side. Um, so it was a serendipitous moment. Um, it really has changed my life. And that, that was almost 30 years ago. So it's interesting how I got started. It wasn't something I was out to do. Um, and it's really changed um, how I have uh, I've adapted in, in this healthcare setting. 
that's an incredible story to to be in the wrong interview and you end up <laughs> uh, just really changing your life. So I want you to appeal to our listeners. Why should they donate organs? You know, it's I think it's the the humanistic side of things. And you always have to look at if you need it. If you need transplants or someone in your family needs a transplant, wouldn't you want someone to say yes? And you can really give a legacy to this life and this world by changing someone else's life. And I think that's the value that we provide. So signing up to be an organ donor, I think, is the right thing to do, not just for yourself, but those around you and in your community. The need is always increasing. As transplants continue to be more successful, the need rises. So if if you're on dialysis, a lot of people wait too long to, to get on a, on a list for a transplant because they know other people who have gotten transplants. They're, they're thinking, oh, gosh, you know, my friend Joe had a transplant. He did really well. Maybe I should consider that as well. So the more transplants done, the more awareness done, people are accepting to, to get a transplant. Would you walk us through right now while we're on this topic and while it is fresh on our mind? If people, I mean, I would imagine that some people know, oh, yes, I've signed up and I know I'm good. And then there's that little hint of doubt. How do people know whether they are an organ donor and how do they become one if they're not? Great questions. So if you pull out your driver's license, you should see a little red heart on the bottom. Um, that signifies that you're a, you're a donor. If it's not there, I would encourage you to go to DonateLiveTexas.org to sign up today. Um, it's an easy process. Um, or the next time you're at the license bureau for a renewal, you might uh, say yes when they ask you. But I would sign up today because, you know, our license expires in eight years. You don't want to wait eight years. Give us that website one more time. DonateLiveTexas.org. All right. Awesome. And I hope everybody will just take a minute right now, get your driver's license in hand, see where you stand. You've heard the need. And that is something that it's almost like it's the least you could do. So thank you for that. You know, Patty, you mentioned you do testing. Can you expand a little bit on what type of testing are you doing? And then how can the recipient feel confident that the organ they're getting is not infected with COVID-19? You know, Steve, um, out the gate um, in, I guess it was March, in in mid-March when all this hit, we were all scrambling to figure out how we were going to test our donors and make those organs safe and healthy for the recipients. Um, As you know, the the testing takes about five days to get the results back, and that wasn't going to work for for the emergency life-saving transplants. So we had to find a way. We had some partners in our community um, at Methodist Health who came forward and said, we're going to help you. So we were able to quickly, um, I mean, really within 24 hours, set up a process where we could test our donors and have that result back within six hours. So we didn't skip a beat, and it made our transplant centers very confident about the organs that they were they were getting. We've been very fortunate to not slow our business down because we weren't able to do testing. And a lot of our programs throughout the country had to slow down because there wasn't testing available. So we're we're lucky in our community that um, our, our transplant centers have continued on. Patty, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure having you on the show. And thanks for all you do uh, for all the counties you serve. Thank you, Steve. It's been an honor. And that website again is DonateLifeTexas.org. Now, coming up next, we're going back to the Methodist Dallas Medical Center to talk about trauma, including some of the top causes for trauma in the Metroplex. And what they are might surprise you. Next on the Human Side of Healthcare.
The DFW Hospital Council, along with our over 90 member hospitals in North Texas, are proud to bring you the human side of healthcare with Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co-host Thomas Miller. And welcome back to the human side of healthcare. We're going to continue our discussion related to trauma care. And of course, Dr. Daryl Amos, Chief of Trauma for Methodist Health System, is with us and a special treat also. Doreen Freeman, who's the Director of Emergency Services at Methodist Dallas Medical Center, has also joined us. Doreen, thanks for joining in on this second segment. So to our listeners, when they walk into a trauma center or come to a trauma center, what do they see? What do they expect? Well, that's a great question. So, you know, if you're a trauma patient and you're coming into a level one trauma center, it is like a well-oiled machine. There's a team of people working there, nurses, physicians, and surgeons, techs, and paramedics. So we're all dressed in our garb. We have what we call our PPE, which is our personal protective equipment. And we all have what we call our trauma stance. So we stand in a spot. So if I'm the nurse, I'm the primary nurse, I'm standing on your side and I'm actually hooking you up to the monitor and doing what they call a primary assessment. And then we have our emergency room physician who's in charge of your airway, making sure that you're breathing okay. And then we have paramedics who are on the other side of you and and they do things like get the equipment that the doctor needs or draw blood and and then in comes our trauma surgeon and really they, they orchestrate the whole team. So they stand at the foot of the bed and they make decisions, life and death decisions in minutes and they tell us what to do. Hang blood, go to the OR, go to CAT scan. So you know, we do things like we do cut your clothes off and we, we cover you up, but we want to make sure that we're looking at every single bit of your body, making sure that we're doing a full, complete assessment. So at the direction of our surgeon, that's what we do. So it's, it's a team. It's a team effort. Dr. Amos, many people hear about the golden hour. Can you explain what the golden hour is when it relates to trauma? It's a historical concept that deals with um, time, uh, the time that patients are scooped up from the scene and the time they arrive within or to our emergency rooms. I will say, though, trauma is really about seconds and inches. Uh, we make split second decisions. And sometimes the difference in one minute in making the decision or one inch whether it's a trajectory from a handgun or it's hitting some object on the road, it's the difference between life and death. And so we understand that we are in this this moment where our decisions have to be made in the blink of an eye. And uh, it, it's, it's a part of what we we uh, what drives us was it what excites us about trauma. But it's the other thing that also terrifies us because we know that we don't have a long time to make these decisions. So traditionally, when we think about the golden hour trauma, we have a, a very fixed window of time to make an assessment of a patient and to treat that patient. And uh, you mentioned uh, Sandy Hook. Uh, that was what became the genesis of the Stop the Bleeding campaign. Lynn Jacobs up in uh, Connecticut decided, what could we do to try to promote and save more lives? Uh, obviously, they, you know, the first responders could not do anything. Uh, those children had already been shot. But we, we decided that we could in- equip our first responders with tourniquets uh, and that that would make a tremendous difference. And it did in the Boston, uh, the Boston bombing. It's amazing where you learn from from one incident and then can apply it in another. 
And I know you had another comment. Go ahead. Yeah, I just want to say that, you know, Dr. Amos is right. So we learned from Sandy Hook. And one of the programs that we have, or our trauma team in our emergency room nurses do, is they go out and they teach people about Stop the Bleed. Because it's not just about us knowing that information, but it really is about the community knowing that information. So we've learned a lot from that. And we've actually went out and we've helped people help people. So I think that's an, an important thing to remember. You know, Thomas, a comment that I just want to make, and I'd be remiss in this discussion if I didn't, and Dr. Amos and I talked about it during the break, a lot of the trauma that's funded in Texas, uh, and we have a great trauma system in Texas yeah, compared do. to other states, right. uh, was funded through a program called the Driver Responsibility Act, which I'm not going to get into, but there were some problems associated with that. But to the credit of the Texas legislature, I want to give them some kudos. They found other funding when the driver responsibility funding ceased. They found other sources of revenue and trauma funding to continue what we're just talking about here today. So while sometimes when you get into public policy and we don't get into politics on this show, I do want to give kudos to the state legislature on continuing that trauma funding. And Thomas, you know, I've asked all the questions. You're usually not this shy. Well, I wait for the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to ask a couple of things. Now, we've been talking about level one trauma. And just for the sake of time, again, that's the top level of delivery of service. We have, if you count all of them, four top level trauma hospitals in the downtown area. But it's a vast metroplex. So how does that balance out? Well, there are various protocols that we use, but when first responders pick up patients, they're looking for the highest level trauma center in closest proximity to them. And as we all know, there has been an explosion uh, in the population in North Texas. So as North Texas continues to grow, our trauma services continue to grow. So we work in cooperation with the other trauma centers because each trauma center has a a fixed capacity in the number of patients they can treat on a routine basis. Now, when there's a catastrophic event, then we have protocols set up to respond to large influxes of injured patients. But we work in tandem and we utilize, and you know this, Steve, the RAC um, and the hospital council to do citywide drills in preparation for large-scale events. Now, you were mentioning some of the things that you've been seeing a spike of recently here in the last six to nine months. What uh, Tell us what's going on in your facility now. Well, as we know, the, the whole country is looking at the opioid epidemic, oh, yeah. and we've seen a tremendous spike in substance abuse-related traffic accidents. Um, there is a high number of our patients that we see that are either intoxicated from alcohol or other drug substances that come in as a result of being intoxicated and losing control of their vehicles or, God forbid, hitting someone else. The second thing that we're seeing, um, and I know the city is very sensitive to it, uh, there's been a tremendous spike in homicide and violent-related trauma in the city. We saw 18 uh, homicide victims or shooting victims in our facility in the past 30 days. Goodness sakes. Can I go back to the traffic for just a second? Is it daytime discriminant or are you seeing these substance related accidents all through the day? 
we see them all through the day, but I often say that after 12 midnight, everybody should be in bed. <laughs> and um, uh, we, see a, <laughs> we see a tremendous amount of um, uh, people that are, uh, have altered mental states from substances after midnight uh, until the wee hours of the morning. Now, does that end up being wrong way type accidents or what kind of things do you see? We've had some, tra- some horrific wrong way accidents, but we've also had people running red lights uh, and other traffic uh, devices. And uh, we call it T-boning people. And you're passing through, you have the right of way. Somebody continues on without hitting the brakes and hits the side of the car and results in horrific injuries. And a lot of time that's substance related. A lot of times it's substance related. And I will also say, you know, the automotive industry was very focused on front airbags. And front. there's now that strong focus on side impact airbags and making uh, vehicles more safe because of that process. Now, the other thing I wanted to throw in, that is the cell phone. So between the cell phone and the substance, who wins that one? I think the substance wins, but... I- You know, social media and people using their cell phones when they're in a vehicle that weighs three to four thousand pounds traveling at 60 and 70 miles an hour cannot be good. Are there any other categories that you could inform us of that we might not have thought about? I'm thinking home accidents or just any other kinds of things that we that, you know, just in our daily lives that we might give a little extra attention to. We're living longer than ever. And uh, our aging population is more active than ever. And grandma and grandpa and auntie and uncle are falling. They're slipping, coming down from, you know, getting something out of the kitchen or they're out um, still riding their bikes or, you know, playing sports. And so we have seen a tremendous spike. And we have a program in our hospital called the Geriatric uh, trauma program, the G60 program, where we target folks that are 60 years and old. As I get older, I, I don't think that number, I think it should be raised higher. That's a child, isn't it, Stephen? <laughs> uh, yes, I would agree <laughs> with that. It's a child. <laughs> so, so, but the geriatric trauma program is specifically designed to treat uh, elderly patients who are normally the victims of falls. They come in with uh, fractured hips, uh, fractures to their upper extremities and sometimes head injuries. You know, I like to follow competitive skiing and Michaela Schifrin, who is the U.S. gold medal champion now, is going to take over the sport. Her dad, all that was disclosed in public was at their home. He was there evidently by himself, transported to Denver and died of a head injury. You remember the Atkins diet? That's how Dr. Atkins passed away. He slipped on some ice, hit the back of his head, had a bleed. Um, and died as a result of a traumatic brain injury. Subdermal hematoma, right? Subdural hematoma. Yeah, there you go. This has been a great discussion as we continue discussion on emergency room and especially on trauma. Uh, Dr. Amos, thank you again for being here. And Doreen Freeman, thank you for joining us on this second segment. I think everything that both of you described underscores why we're talking about the human side of healthcare. And you know, the message that is resonating around the country in hospitals now is if you need 911 assistance for a medical emergency, please don't be afraid to call. Great teams like the one you just heard will be there waiting to provide excellent care for you. Dr. Amos's full interview is on our podcast on all the major podcast players search up the human side of healthcare. Now, when we come back, a further conversation about how COVID spreads and how we can help stop it. 
Nancy Vish from Baylor Scott and White next on the Human Side of Healthcare. We're continuing our conversation on how you can empower yourself to have the best health possible in today's ever-changing healthcare environments. This is the Human Side of Healthcare with DFW Hospital Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co-host Thomas Miller. And welcome back to the Human Side of Healthcare. Steve Love along with Thomas Miller. And we're going to continue a discussion with Nancy Vish. Nancy has been with us on previous segments. She is the president and chief nursing officer for the Heart and Vascular Hospital for Baylor Scott and White in Dallas and Fort Worth. And you know, Steve, as you well know, the hospitals have been tweaking their protocols based on a flood of incoming knowledge about how COVID transmits, who is most susceptible, and then they've been implementing that into their programs. So obviously, the heart and vascular center is not as susceptible to COVID cases, but they are testing for them, and they have changed a number of their protocols according to what they've learned. And that's where we began our conversation with Nancy. As we've learned through the CDC and hearing from our medical teams out there throughout the United States as well as the world, I would say that one of the most important pieces we've learned is that distancing of, as you uh, hear, is six feet. um, And what happens when you're communicating and are coughing or sneezing within that six feet? So wearing the masks, making sure that we don't have people here with any types of symptoms. We've doing doing temperature checks. Those are the things that we have learned, and we've learned that close contact without protection leads to uh, that transmission piece. Um, We have had, uh, as we're studying this and physicians and researchers are studying across the United States, healthcare workers that are working directly with COVID positive patients, it is about the protection that we're wearing and how we're managing um, those interactions. So back on the 911 topic, let's say that mm-hmm. you had a family member who was reluctant to call 911. Let us in on the phone conversation of how you would comfort them and assure them that it was okay to dial that number. I would tell that family member if fear of COVID-19 infection was preventing them or inhibiting them from calling 911. I would work very quickly to educate them that they need to understand that our hospitals are probably much safer environments or they are much safer environments than the grocery store or Walmart. We are monitoring temperature checks when people come in. We're masking all of our patients and our visitors. We are asking all of the screening questions um, before someone is even allowed inside the building. And then certainly all of the healthcare providers here are self-monitoring and aware of what it takes to ensure that we have a safe environment. Cleaning protocols are extreme. We use everything from the correct chemicals and the frequency that you need to have done, but also UV light disinfection, uh, working on paperless processes, all of those pieces that make that environment that you're in much safer and much safer than so many public areas that people are going to to buy groceries and or other needed products. 
But while I'm convincing them, if it were my family member, I've already called 911 to get that ambulance to the household. (laughs) You've already taken action. That's great. Perfect. Now, what about your staff? I, for some reason, I just wanted to ask about your staff. How are they holding up through this? And part B, do you have any great staff hero stories that you could brag on your team a little bit? Oh, yes. So I would say that um, when you think about a healthcare provider in this type of environment, everybody is human. And so um, uh, the healthcare providers are facing the same emotional issues that I would say everybody in the United States is facing. Our lives are all different today. So our professional lives are different in the in this environment and our personal lives are different. So uh, not only are we taking care of patients in a different way and working with patients that are potentially infected or are infected and that worry that comes naturally from a healthcare provider that is in that situation. My first job was in University of Pittsburgh Medical Center with uh, liver transplant patients who had hepatitis. We were tested every six months. So I prayed every day before I walked into that building to say, please make sure that I am protecting myself so that I'm not going to transmit this to my friends and family when I get home and that I stay well and that I'm making the right decisions and doing the right things to protect the patient. So there's that natural fear that comes with what you do. But we chose healthcare because we it's, it's in us, it's a mission to be able to make a difference and to be part of the serving for the greater good. We have employees just like everybody whose spouses, significant others, family members have been financially impacted because their jobs no longer exist. So it really um, adds a lot of emotion and stress to every individual and especially the healthcare worker who's dealing directly in situations where you have patients either under investigation while we're waiting for tests to result or we have patients that are positive diagnosis. I'm sure you've got some stories that you'd like to brag about your staff. I would say uh, we all have so many hero stories um, as you're working in the healthcare environment. Our hospital has not had um, any positive COVID patients. We've had patients under investigation for the heart and vascular hospital here in Dallas and Fort Worth. But um, our hero stories, we have nurses who have volunteered to work in COVID positive units that have been flexed out into those areas. We have uh, had employees who have gone to other states to help give care. We have um, our coworkers here who have done amazing things in their personal lives. You have a new lens on with this pandemic. We have stories where people talk about, I never realized the elderly, I never saw the elderly lady that was two doors down. And now they're bringing groceries to the elderly lady and they're serving in their community in a very different way because this crisis has created a different way of looking at your fellow man and your fellow coworker. I think there's a lot of increased sensitivity 
and empathy out there for uh, watching for elderly and what's going on. You see people very much united, units that have come together that may not normally interact together because you are sending people to help either uh, observe somebody putting protective gear on or you're helping in a different way. And you really see that this whole process of care takes a partnership that spans across all specialties. And that is what creates the outcomes that we achieve. It is really a result of multiple specialties and being partners in care. I know one of the big upcoming areas in healthcare prior to this were the navigation teams, nurse navigators, nurses helping people through the healthcare system. Has that expanded? I would say that um, it is expanded in different ways. So um, more people have picked up a navigation role, so to speak. Um, in this process. Uh, We've also looked at and have digital options where there's screening processes online and then it walks you through processes of next steps to take. So I would say that navigation has expanded to more roles because of the situation that we're in as well as advances in a digital way of navigating whether it be through an app or through the web. Nancy, it's just been such a pleasure to have you on the human side of healthcare. We want to thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me on, Steve. You know, the bottom line message is the hospitals all over the DFW Metroplex are gearing up to help us take the very best care of our health as we move back to opening up fully and safely. And to that end, remember, your mask is still your best friend. Thanks so much for joining us on the human side of healthcare. Check out our podcast on all the major podcast players, and we will be back with you again next week. 